1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Among other things, we'll ta- have a conversation with Alexandra Kirkendall, author of Loving My Actual Neighbor. Seven Practices to Treasure the People Right in Front of You. The book is published by Baker. She'll join us at uh, 19 minutes, to be precise, after the second hour of today's program. Well, at least two people are dead and 13 more were injured in a shooting at a Kroger grocery store in Tennessee, according to police there. The suspected shooter is among the dead, likely from a self-inflicted gunshot. Well, the shooting was reported this afternoon at about one thirty p.m. Central Daylight Time at the Kroger uh... in um... Collierville, about 30 miles east of Memphis, Tennessee, uh, terrified grocery shoppers ran from the building amid gunshots fired inside, according to survivors and eyewitnesses. We found people hiding in freezers in locked offices, said the police chief, Dale Lane. They're uh, doing what they could um, and what they had been trained to do, run, hide or fight. One employee was extracted from the roof of the store. It was horrific. We hate that it happened. But this is one of the most resilient communities in America and one of the best police departments the uh, police chief dale lane went on to say the grocery store sits in a strip mall near a wendy's and a walgreens the uh, one of the employees who worked there worked for kroger's floral department said she was not injured but shaken she said she walked out of the back office to the floral counter when she heard something that sounded like a gunshot and by the way Uh, They are cautioning if you hear something that sounds like a gunshot, it's probably best to assume that's precisely what it is. She said she ran out the door. She left her purse, her keys, everything. They became less important under those circumstances. She said she's not sure how many people were injured. We now know how many, but she believes she saw a bagger and some customers who had been shot before she fled. The Memphis Police Department was on the scene. According to social media, the story is developing. And again, it's not clear if the shooter died of self-inflicted wounds. That has not been clarified uh, as of yet. Meanwhile, a broken power-sharing deal, the lingering possibility of a Republican walkout, and a COVID-19 case are adding greater uncertainty to whether Oregon lawmakers are going to successfully redraw the state's political districts ahead of a tight deadline. Well, the stakes are pretty high. Oregon gained a new sixth U.S. House seat following the latest census. Lawmakers were told the House would reconvene in Salem on Wednesday morning following news Tuesday that someone in the building had tested positive for COVID-19. House Speaker Tina Kotek now says the chamber won't convene until Saturday to give time for those exposed to the coronavirus case to be tested and receive results. Well, the Democrats say that their entire caucus in the House has been vaccinated. The number of Oregon vaccinated Republican lawmakers wasn't immediately available. When the House reconvenes on Saturday, lawmakers will have uh, just two days to vote on and pass new political boundaries before the September 27th deadline. If congressional maps are not passed by that deadline, yeah. The task will fall to a panel of five retired judges appointed by the Oregon Supreme Court. But who will return to the Capitol when the House doors reopen remains something of a question for a variety of reasons, including political reasons. House Republicans showed signs of a possible walkout this week after a Kotech, who is a Democrat, rescinded a power-sharing deal to redraw political maps that she made with the House GOP. If Republicans don't go to the floor of the House, the chamber won't have a quorum, meaning lawmakers wouldn't be able to proceed with business. In exchange for Republicans to stop blocking bills with uh, delaying tactics during the 2021 legislative session, the House Speaker had said that she would evenly split the House Redistricting Committee, essentially granting veto power to the GOP over any proposed map. Well, her announcement to pull back from the deal on Monday left Republicans, well, furious, as it's, it now gives Democrats a powerful advantage to pass maps they choose, likely resulting in five of the U.S. House seats being blue, two Republicans won. Currently, Democrats hold four of Oregon's five House seats, said the uh, Republican leader Christine Drazen uh, in a statement about Kotech. She lied and broke her promise not just to us, but to Oregonians. Well, in a statement, uh, Kotex said she was disappointed that after many months of work, House Republicans didn't engage constructively despite many attempts to address their concerns and lead to her decision to avoid the standing deal. Well, both parties have used walkouts, a tool made available by the Oregon Constitution. In the past, with Republicans relying on it to, in recent years, most notably in 2019 when Republicans used it to uh, stop a cap and trade bill. While well, the Senate passed uh, maps on Saturday without Republican support, those maps also need to be voted on in the House. In addition to the six congressional districts, lawmakers are also responsible for passing 90 legislative districts, which determines how voters pick state representatives and state senators. Again, if the legislative maps are not passed by Monday, the task will fall to the Secretary of State um, Shamia Fagan, a progressive Democrat who few Republicans would want to uh, see in charge of that process. So the process in quotes continues. Interestingly, both The Washington Post and The Hill Certainly not conservative uh, publications reported on the lopsided nature of the maps proposed by the Oregon legislative Democrats. The Washington Post used their own analysis to show how imbalanced all of this was. Uh, Oregon proposed congressional redistricting plan hit the na- the uh, national stage, as reported in The Hill. That's a Washington D.C. news organization. The correspondent Reed, uh, Reed Wilson noted that a leading proposal to redraw Oregon's congressional district lines boiled over into partisan acrimony as Democrats aimed to force through a new map that would virtually lock in control of five of the state's six seats in the U.S. House of Representatives for the next decade. Well, Wilson highlighted how the proposal extends the reach of the heavily Democratic Portland area out to the coast, south along I-5 and east across the Cascades. Peter DeFazio has his district transformed into a Democrat stronghold. Oregon's new 6th dist- uh, district links liberal areas in southern Portland with the Willamette Valley and down around Salem. House Speaker Tina Kotek. Uh, after creating two new committees uh, to pass the measures, believes the maps will withstand challenge. But House Republican leader Christine Drazen, she stated that uh, absurdity and hypocrisy in the statement by Kotech and other House Democrats. The House, after pausing for a covid outbreak at the Capitol, is scheduled to reconvene on Saturday or for that matter, not In other news a bit farther away from home, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced on Thursday what the top Democrats framed as progress on reconciliation and infrastructure negotiations, an agreement on a framework on how to pay for the $3.5 trillion reconciliation spending bill. Problem is, some top Democrats say they weren't told about it. Schumer, the Democrat from New York who joined House Speaker Nancy Pelosi from California at her weekly press conference, provided almost no details on the alleged framework. And only minutes after the press conference ended, uh, they were met with backlash from top Democrat senators who weren't uh, read in on the alleged agreement. Well, the White House, the House and the Senate have reached an agreement on a framework that will pay for any final negotiated agreement, Schumer said, in his brief comments, also present was Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, although she didn't speak when pressed on the details of the framework and whether there is any progress on the rest of the Democrats' agenda. Pelosi had little to uh, give the press in the room. The House, the Senate, and the White House came to an agreement on how we can go forward in a way to pay for this. Pelosi said when she was asked what exactly what the framework was and what's in it. We have consensus on in overwhelmingly maybe ten to one twenty to two. In in our caucus, as to these priorities, a higher percentage in the Senate. And she further described the framework as an array of agreements that we have while clarifying that we are finalizing the outlay side. While some Democrat leaders say we have no idea what you're talking about, or at least didn't at that time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you, coming up in our second hour, we'll hear from Alexandra Kirkendall, author of Loving My Actual Neighbor Seven Practices to Treasure the People Right in Front of You. Again, coming up in the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a new report from a conservative anti-tax group, the Club for Growth, is warning of a massive loss in economic output and a significant hit to middle class families if the tax hikes that accompany a $3.5 trillion spending proposal is signed into law. Copying European style fiscal policy will produce European style economic weakness, particularly when considering that much of uh, the new redistribution spending will discourage work as much uh, and much of uh, the class warfare tax increases will penalize saving, investment and entrepreneurship a new report by the group says. And while much of the debate around the bill is focused on the spending side, the group is trying to raise awareness of the tax plan that's in the bill as well. The report warns that the proposal would result in the U.S. having the highest corporate tax rate and the highest capital gains tax rate in the developed world. The bottom line is that the president's tax and spend agenda repeats the mistakes of nations such as France, Italy, and Greece, it finds. While those nations suffer from slower growth, Higher unemployment and lower living standards in large part because of bad fiscal policy. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has quietly removed guidance for phasing out masks and other COVID 19 mitigation efforts in schools. Um, the cached version of the agency's website now shows, While well, the CDC made the changes when it updated its guidance on universal indoor mask for children, for students, for staff, teachers and visitors to K through 12 schools, regardless of their vaccination status. Back in August, we believe that our state, as well as teachers unions, probably had an influence over the change. That's the uh, quote from an advocate for fully reopening California schools, Jonathan Zackerson. It's basically mask indefinitely in schools forever and there is no off ramp. So it's really disappointing to see that end quote. Well, teachers unions have previously influenced changes to the CDC's school related guidance. Reports have uh, shown. Well, a CDC spokesperson, Jade false uh, said that the guidance is always being revised based on the current epidemiology epidemiology and that increases in the Delta variant and low vaccination coverage in some communities led to the changes that broad swath that applies apparently to all regardless of what's uh, specific to an area but the CDC's previous guidance only suggested transitioning out of COVID-19 precautions including masking students as uh, cases decreased so mitigation efforts would remain in the uh, case of a surge or a high infection rate. The language in the agency's guidance for COVID nineteen prevention in K through twelve schools intended to help school administrators and local health officials transition from prevention strategies as cases move to lower levels, was removed on the fourth of August. A cached version of the website shows, while well, a note on the guidance states that it was updated to recommend indoor masking for everyone, but doesn't mention that any language was removed. Even though language was removed, Victor Davis Hanson, who's one of my favorite uh, writers. Uh, wrote about COVID-19 and the death of science. And this is what he said back on the 17th. He says the scientific method used to govern much of popular American thinking, the empirical fashion scientists advise us to examine evidence and data and then by induction come to rational hypotheses. The enemies of science were politics, superstition, bias, and deduction. Yet we are now returning to our version of medieval alchemy and astrology and rejecting a millennium, of the scientific method. Take the superstitions that now surround COVID-19. We now know from data that a prior case of COVID-19 offers immunity as robust as vaccination. Why, then, are President Joe Biden's proposed vaccination mandates ignoring that science, that scientific fact? Dr. Anthony Fauci, when asked, seemed at a loss for words. Is this yet another of the scientific community's uh, platonic noble lies, as when Fauci assured the public last year that there was no need for masks. He later claimed he had lied so that medical professionals would not run out of needed supplies. Now, for me and my household, I made all the masks you say we need them you make them you wear them. Anyway, Fauci also threw out mythical percentages needed to uh, needed for herd immunity, apparently in an attempt to persuade the public that it will never be safe until every American is protected from COVID-19 by vaccination only. He said that 70%, he just uh, found sounded good but had no scientific basis. And why was it that uh, hard for the scientific community to postulate a likely origin of COVID-19. Some of the very scientists engaged in gain-of-function research oversaw an investigation with Chinese authorities. They confirmed the predetermined conclusion that the virus likely had little to do with the gain-of-function engineering, and they saw little proof. It was uh, uh, birthed in a Wuhan virology lab. Yes, or rather yet, scientific opinion, emerging evidence and basic logic have suggested the opposite. How can the government hector citizens that they have a moral duty and soon a legal obligation to be vaccinated when it does not mandate vaccinations for unvetted refugees flying in from Afghanistan and elsewhere? How can the government medical community remained largely silent when an anticipated two million foreign nationals will cross into the united states in the current fiscal year almost none of whom are vaccinated or tested for covid 19 why do the media and government blame particular races for the delta variant Outbreak on grounds that they were insufficiently vaccinated. Why wouldn't officials simply urge the Latino and black communities to be vaccinated as quickly as possible? Data shows that both groups have lower vaccination rates than white and Asian populations. Our woke political agendas discrediting science and losing public health. We saw just that in June of 2020, when more than 1,200 healthcare professionals signed a petition demanding exemptions from lockdowns and quarantines for Black Lives Matter protesters marching in mass. And they concocted medical excuses such as vital to the national public health to insist that violating quarantines was less unhealthy than not pouring into the streets. Why did presidential candidate Joe Biden and his running mate Kamala Harris warn the American people on the eve of vaccination rollouts that an inoculation under the Trump administration could be unsafe, thereby undermining confidence in vaccines? And why was the medical community largely silent about such dangerous sabotaging of new vaccines, but months later became vociferous in warning the public that any doubts about the safety of these Operation Warp Speed vaccinations were scientifically misplaced was there a medical breakthrough on the 20th of january 2021 to alter their consensus well from rewarding wokeness and medical school admissions to The peer reviewing of scientific papers, the anti-scientific mania, has polluted scientific endeavors. Critical race theory would preposterously tell us that we need racism to fight racism. Critical legal theory ludicrously claims that laws have no rational basis and simply reflect power inequities. Modern monetary theory defies millennia of evidence and basic logic in stating that governments can simply print money without worrying about balancing expenditures with revenues or inflating the currency to ruination. Corporations are now asked to substitute a new woke agenda theory, environmental, social, and corporate governance, in lieu of market realities, rules of investment, and economic data. Science is dying, and superstition disguised as morality is returning, and will all soon become poorer, angrier, and more divided because of it. Again, Victor Davis Hanson. Well, members of the military who've served with honor are facing dishonorable discharge Refusing the COVID-19 shot. And there are lots of reasons why people choose not to have it. Liberty Council has been um, inundated with heart-rending pleas for help for military members who are now being ordered to get the COVID shots or face discipline, including solitary confinement and dishonorable discharge. The United States Marine who served in Afghanistan during Operation Freedom Sentinel and Operation Southern Vigilance is facing dishonorable discharge if he does not get the COVID shots. This service member graduated as the honor graduate of the class in uh, the course meant for uh, corporals and sergeants and is currently serving as an E4 corporal. Having been diagnosed with two heart conditions, uh, arrhythmia and uh, right bundle branch blockage, Taking the shot isn't an option for this Marine due to the side effects of blood clots and heart inflammation being seen. The military personnel informed the Marine that the only way for a medical waiver was that the diagnosis could have to be uh, could have to be. Um, congenital heart failure. He is also being told there was no religious exemption. If I don't stand for what I believe in, I could never look at myself in the mirror again. This is everything I fought for and taught my Marines and everything our founding fathers stood against. This is completely unconstitutional and goes against more than one amendment says an anonymous Marine corporal or the anonymous Marine corporal. Well, the corporal is facing dishonorable and bad conduct discharge for refusing the COVID-19 shot. The punishment includes general court-martial at the divisional commander level, six months solitary confinement, imprisonment, a felony charge, and never being able to get a home loan, own a gun, or work a federal job. Unacceptable. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine
1: Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll hear from Alexandra Kirkendall, author of Loving My Actual Neighbor Seven Practices to Treasure the People Right in Front of You. The book is published by Baker. She'll join us uh, later in the second hour. President Biden's net approval rating among unvaccinated black voters has dropped a stunning 17 points since he announced plans to implement a federal vaccine mandate for companies with more than 100 people. That's according to a new morning consult poll. Uh, Biden's favor among black voters dropped substantially between an initial poll conducted between September 6th and 8th, uh, just before Biden's mandate announcement on the 9th and a second poll taken September 18th through 20th of more than 1,000 black voters. The second poll revealed that 71% of black voters approved of Biden's performance, down five points since the mandate. The share who disapproved rose 7% to 24%. 37% said they strongly approve of his performance, while 14% said they strongly disapprove. Again, his approval rating among black voters fell after the private sector vaccine mandate, particularly given that African Americans and Hispanics are among uh, the, uh, And PhDs, by the way, are among those who are vaccine-resistant. Well, the House passed a bill raising the debt ceiling to avert a government shutdown. The next step, the next stop, well, that would be the U.S. Senate. Not quite so easy there. We'll see. The House Rep- of Representatives voted on Tuesday night to pass a continuing resolution to fund the government through the 3rd of December and raise the $28 trillion debt ceiling. H.R. 5305 passed in a party line vote 220 to 2011, or 211. It uh, will need the support of at least 10 Republicans to pass in the Senate. Citing opposition to President Biden's agenda, nearly every Republican in the Senate has expressed opposition to trying to, uh, Uh, Raise the debt ceiling into the bill that funds the government. The federal government's facing a looming shutdown on the 1st of October, today, by the way, the 23rd, if Congress can't reach a consensus by the 30th of September deadline. Well, the government is also slated to hit the debt ceiling by mid-October, which Treasury Secretary uh, Janet Yellen wrote in a recent Wall Street Journal op-ed could lead to economic catastrophe. The bill that Speaker Pelosi is bringing through this week will not become law. The House Minority Whip, Steve Scalise of uh, Louisiana, said they're going to have to go back to the drawing board. Senator John Kennedy, Republican from Louisiana, is the only Republican who has said he would vote yes happily for the bill, which includes $28.6 billion in natural disaster relief funds for states such as Louisiana, which was recently ravaged by Hurricane Ida. In other developments, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi... Uh, met with President Biden to discuss the reconciliation and infrastructure bills. And a report from an anti-vax group is warning that the three point I should say anti-tax group is warning that the three point five trillion dollar spending plan would hit economic output and hurt savings. Well, the president refused to call on U.S. reporters while the U.K.'s Boris Johnson held court with fellow Brit reporters. The president declined to call on U.S. reporters on Tuesday after the British prime minister took questions from reporters from the U.K. during an Oval Office meeting. Well, after a brief conversation with the president that touched on issues ranging from climate change and transport infrastructure to lifting the ban on British beef, Johnson opened the floor to reporters from his home country. Would it be okay if we um, have just a couple of questions? Just a couple, Johnson asked, looking over to Biden, who replied, good luck. After Johnson had taken several questions from British reporters, the press pool was then corralled out of the Oval Office while Johnson uh, was mid-sentence, prompting a flurry of shouted questions from reporters. President Biden appeared to briefly answer one shouted question as the pool exited, saying the violence is unacceptable. It's not clear what the question was. White House reporters made a formal complaint with the White House about not getting any formal questions while the British press asked away. In other developments, reporters slammed the White House for shouting down questions from the press pool. And White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was uh, taken aback after a CBS anchor criticized the very bad behavior by the U.S. saying we don't see it that way. Reporters say thousands of Haitian migrants camped in Del Rio, Texas, are being let into the United States. And Tucker Carlson points out that the president knew the, the border crisis was coming and allowed it because he wants illegal immigrants here. He cited a a, a debate in which the then-candidate uh, Biden made that, uh, that statement. President Biden, in his US, U.N. speech, says the U.S. isn't seeking a new Cold War with China. The military action must be a tool of last resort. Meanwhile, the federal agencies are buying up Chinese drones previously deemed a national security threat. The FAA is asking airlines to take more action in curbing unruly passenger incidents. And a world leader's son slammed Marxist de Blasio for warning his father not to go to the U.N. over a lack of vaccines. Well, uh, Trump's paint job pick for the uh, new Air Force One is not final, according to a general. And a deaf woman says a coffee chain refused to serve her over a small mask request. She can only communicate by reading lips. She asked if they would lower the mask so she could understand what was being said. She was thrown out. Well, Costco was warning and, you know, hold your hold yourself here. Customers, there's going to be delays on essential household items, including and primarily toilet paper. The SEC's Grinsler says he doesn't see cryptocurrencies lasting very long. Well, we'll see. Well, the Landry family's Florida neighbors say they appeared um, to go camping after Brian returned from Wyoming. And in the latest on this um on this case, the FBI on Friday said the U.S. District Court of Wyoming, Wyoming rather, issued a federal arrest warrant for Brian Landry, a person of interest in the disappearance and homicide of deceased Gabby Petito. The warrant alleges that Landry committed debit card fraud between the 30th of August and September 1st. The warrant is pursuant to a federal grand jury indictment for violation of federal statute 18 use of unauthorized devices related to Mr. Landry's activities following the death of his fiance. And while the warrant allows law enforcement to rest to arrest Mr. Landry, the FBI and their partners across the country continue to investigate the facts and circumstances of Miss Petito's Homicide. In other uh, developments, the search for Brian Landry continues at a Florida reserve. Gabby Petito's stepfather laid a stone cross at the spot where her remains were found, and friends say the couple's relationship was toxic at times. President Biden's approval rating has taken a plunge among independents. The president's approval rating among Americans stands in negative territory at 43 percent, a drop of six points in just one month, according to a new Gallup poll and other developments. um, We are reminded that uh, Joe Biden revealed why he supported illegal immigration in 2015 Uh, He said at the time he wanted and still wants to change the country Four House Republicans filed impeachment articles against President Biden over chaos at the southern border and the botched exit from Afghanistan. My guess is we're going to see impeachments bandied about for generations to come. Elizabeth Warren says the infrastructure and reconciliation bills go together, saying 11 senators back House progressives. Ted Cruz says the Biden administration told Haitians you can stay here and they spread the word to family and friends. The FDA has authorized Pfizer booster shots for seniors and high-risk people. The Food and Drug Administration on Wednesday authorized Pfizer booster shots for people 65 and older and those at high risk. The FDA told uh, Uh, news agencies, it has approved a single booster shot to be administered to some groups at least six months after their first two doses. These groups include those 65 years and older, those 18 to 64 who are either at high risk or severe COVID-19 or who work in high risk places. Today's action demonstrates that science and the currently available data continue to guide the FDA's decision making for COVID-19 vaccines during this pandemic. So says the FDA commissioner, Janet Woodcock, after considering the totality of the available scientific evidence and the deliberations of our advisory committee of independent external experts. The FDA amended the EUA for the Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine to allow for a booster dose in certain populations, such as healthcare workers, teachers, daycare staff, grocery workers and those in homeless shelters or prisons, among others. The announcement comes after an advisory group serving the FDA overwhelmingly rejected a sweeping White House plan to dispense third uh, shots to nearly everyone. In other developments, uh, New York City Mayor de Blasio's uh, proposed teacher vaccination mandate has been allowed by a judge to proceed. And a state police union has sued over the governor's uh, vaccine mandate. Congressional bipartisan police reform talks sparked by George Floyd's death have collapsed without a deal. And two Afghan refugees at Fort McCoy are facing charges of sex crimes against a minor and domestic abuse. Baltimore hit 250 homicides in 2021, with 25 of them in September alone. And the Fed has predicted when interest rates will likely rise while moving to ease pandemic support. And By the way, that's 2022. Real estate to Evergrande's collapse could be worse than uh, Lehman's for China. And a tech giant CEO vowed the company will do everything in its power to find leakers. And Chick-fil-A has been kicked out of a group of restaurants for a major new airport. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, Alexandra Kirkendall, loving my actual neighbor. Well, the head of the Border Patrol Union is accusing the Biden administration of using a controversy over agents on horseback, blocking Haitian migrants to deflect from his own handling of the crisis at the border, while saying the furor is completely and totally demoralizing for agents who, by the way, are no longer allowed to use horses. They know that uh, what is taking place under the bridge is very embarrassing to them. So they're trying to deflect. Brandon uh, Judd, head of the National Border Patrol Council, said in an interview, that's the themselves for their failures, which led to the catastrophe that's taking place under the bridge. Well, Judd was referring to a controversy fueled primarily by activists and uh, lawmakers about images that emerged Sunday of Border Patrol agents blocking migrants in Del Rio from entering the U.S. Agents were surged um, to the... uh area to tackle the waves, uh, which saw more than 14,000 migrants camped under the bridge last week and led to the administration increasing deportation flights. A uh, judge said uh, previously that Border Patrol uh, warned the administration about the potential crisis months ago, but no action was taken. That months ago, by the way, was June. Well, after the images and most of the Haitians, by the way, are coming from Brazil and not directly from Haiti as a result of events that took place there most recently. Well, after the images emerged, some falsely claimed that the agents in the images were using whips to hit migrants, a narrative seized by on, uh, on by a number of Democrats. Meanwhile, the White House called the images horrible and horrific, uh, while Vice President Harris called for an investigation and described the images as troubling. Well, there were lots of images that were troubling, but only those particular images are being investigated. Judd, uh, with the um, the union, pointed out what were misidentified by many in the media and on Capitol Hill as whips were, in fact, long reins, which are used to control the horse. Uh, in um, Riverines and said that no migrants were hit or injured during the incident. Well, the White House aggressively shoes the press out of uh, Biden um, as they tried to ask him questions following his U.N. A press conference and a squad of uh, bullies Democrats into not funding Israel's Iron Dome. They later passed the funding in a standalone bill, but it was quite a spectacle. A group of lawmakers, the squad in particular, including representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib, forced House Democrat leadership Tuesday to cut a billion dollars from Israel's Iron Dome from a short term government uh, funding bill. Now, that is a a defensive um ne- uh mechanism and not, uh, uh, you don't use it to uh, fire on anyone else. Anyway, moderate um, House Democrats slammed their progressive colleagues for their anti-Israel stance, arguing that the Iron Dome is not an offensive weapon, but rather a defensive mechanism, which is what I meant to say, to shield civilians from rocket attacks by Islamist militant groups. Um Representative Elisa Slotkin said, Iron Dome is a purely defensive system. It protects civilians when hundreds of rockets are shot at population centers. Whatever your views on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, using a system... That just saved hundreds, if not thousands, of lives as a political chit is problematic. From the Wall Street Journal, Hamas rockets are meant to kill Israeli civilians, but Iron Dome also saves Palestinian lives. When the rocket attacks are futile and the Israeli casualties are prevented, these less domestic uh, pressures... Uh, there's less domestic pressures on Israel's political leaders to escalate their military response. Iron Dome was one big reason the Hamas rocket offensive in the spring didn't provoke a costly Israeli ground invasion. The system's deployment and improvement with U.S. funding also helps develop technology that can be used to defend Americans. A 33-year-old weatherman was forced out of a job for refusing a vaccine, Carl Bonack, Warned, our way of life, our freedom, and liberty is collapsing before our eyes. Well, Sunday Night Football trounced the Emmys. The football game had 16.1 million viewers, while the Emmys had 6.3 million. McDonald's is phasing out toys in their Happy Meals to appease climate fears. McDonald's plans to drastically reduce the plastic in its Happy Meals toys worldwide by 2025. So there's still time. The burger giant said Tuesday it's working with toy companies to develop new ideas, such as three-dimensional cardboard uh, superheroes kids can build or... Um, board games with plant-based or recycled gamed pieces from McDonald's starting now the phased in across the globe by the end of 2025. Our ambition is that every toy sold in a Happy Meal will be sustainable, made from more renewable, recycled or certified materials like bio-based and plant-derived materials and certified fiber. Well, Gallup reports the president's job approval rating has fallen to a new low in general. We've talked about among African-Americans and independents. Gallup has him underwater by 10 points now, the first time he's been there. The big drop is among independent voters who have approval at only 37 percent. Democrats are nearly unchanged. Biden supporters are slipping under the table. Well, uh, Hugh Hewitt says the GOP must say no to the Democrats' tax and spend plans. We'll see what uh, happens as these issues are taken up this week. And Oregon has seen a spike in COVID cases after... um Mandating masks outdoors up 73 percent. COVID seems to be ignoring the precautions in the state. Biden sees his approval among blacks drop five points. And DHS puts border agents on desk duty for their efforts to stop border crossings with little help from the feds. Help they've been begging for for months. Well, after the media reported they used whips, confusing horse reins. Things um, happen. The media is still misreporting the events. Maxine Waters had the audacity to call the treatment of Haitians worse than what we witnessed in slavery. Of course, she didn't witness anything, but I'll leave it at that. The ACLU honored and then edited Ruth Bader Ginsburg to make her sentence, well, woke. She's now deceased, of course. The American Civil Liberties Union shared an abortion quote from the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg earlier this week, but replaced the word women's uh, with persons. Uh, Early Davidson said the ACLU is erasing the word woman to appease the uh, rabid um, left is something to behold. Woman isn't the a dirty word and the left should be ashamed of themselves, referring to those involved in this incident, not broadly. Eli Lake said this is both hilarious and chilling. So I guess it's OK to misquote individuals, historical, historic uh, individuals in the future. That could be rather interesting. Well, Black Lives Matter is calling the New York vaccine mandate racist. Surprising it took them this long to jump into the uh, into the fray. From another story, black Americans are the least likely of all racial and ethnic demographics to have received COVID-19 vaccine. According to uh, morning consult, 53 percent of black adults have received the shots, a lower share than that of any other uh, race or ethnicity history explains at least in part why that's the case you're listening to the Georgine Rice show we've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour and later in the second hour we'll hear from Alexandra Kirkendall loving you, your actual neighbor is the title of her book we'll be back in just a few moments you're listening to did you not give me the signal Clark oh I thought you gave me a signal I got lots more to say three whole minutes okay so I'll keep moving forward Every time he flinches, I assume that's a signal and I'm trying to interpret. Okay, sorry, Clark. Uh, John Kerry on being friendly to China despite the Uyghur camps. Life is always full of tough choices, he said. That's his response to the virtual slavery of Uyghurs in China. Life is full of tough choices. huh? Murder and torture is forgiven if they agree to go along with the climate demands and they don't have to actually do it. They just have to agree to do it. What an interesting world we live in. Well, reporters were stunned as the British Prime Minister took questions from the media, but President Biden didn't. And the House passed the bill raising the debt ceiling and averting a government shutdown. Of course, the Senate still has to weigh in. A top Democrat pushed back on the claim that Border Patrol agents swung whips while charging horses toward migrants. And Treasury sanctions the first crypto exchange to fight ransomware attacks. Well, China is acquiring nuclear first strike capability, the ability to attack from space. Case, and Evergrande veers toward default and a $300 billion global shock. Xi Jinping vows to stop building coal power plants, well, abroad anyway. At home, well, not so much. Jen Psaki blames Prime Minister Boris Johnson for Biden refusing to take questions at that presser. And the feds gave the abortion mill Planned Parenthood millions in pandemic relief after ruling it ineligible for government aid. Because pandemics kill and Planned Parenthood... Oh, that's right. They end the lives of unborn children. I guess the math doesn't add up. The EPA plans to slash hydrofluorocarbons used in air conditioning and refrigeration. You might want to get a sweater or a fan. A DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas says the borders are not open, which is news to hundreds of thousands of border crossers. And border encounters this fiscal year are higher than the population of 11 states and the District of Columbia. The defense, okay, that is a signal. This is an, a, okay, got it, Clark. <laughs> the defense bill uh, that would unwisely make women register for the draft is being largely supported by Republicans. And the Federal Reserve signals raising rates may be possible next year. Existing home sales receded 2% in August. And Chicago's Lori Lightfoot wants to give poor families $500 a month in universal basic income to solve the problem of gang violence and drugs. Well, good luck with that. We're going to take a quick break. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. And in our second hour, we'll hear from Alexandra Kirkendall, loving my actual neighbor, seven practices to treasure the people right in front of you. You're
1: listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering, today's program. Coming up in our next couple of segments, we'll hear from Alexandra Kirkendall, author of Loving My Actual Neighbor, Seven Practices to Treasure the People Right in Front of You. The book is published by Baker. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. By the way, the courageous legacy casting crowns getaway. We're celebrating the 10-year anniversary of the Kendrick Brothers' hit movie, Courageous. You can win a getaway to see the Casting Crowns Christmas concert in Grand Prairie, Dallas, uh, in Texas, of course, on Friday, December 17th. Now, the prize includes airfare and hotel for two, concert tickets, and a Kendrick Brothers movie catalog. Uh, enter the Courageous Legacy Casting Crowns giveaway. Oh, that's a mouthful. Let me say it again. Courageous... Legacy Casting Crowns Getaway on KPDQ.com once every day if you want to between now and the 8th of October. You'll find it. Just, uh, you'll have to remember Courageous Legacy and that's all you need to know. Anyway, you'll find it at KPDQ.com. Sounds like fun to go to Grand Prairie, uh, Prairie which is in uh, Dallas, Texas, on Friday, December 17th. Airfare, Hotel for Two, Concert Tickets, Kendrick Brothers Movie Catalog, and we'll, um, Clark and I will come over and we can make some popcorn and watch all of them. In one sitting. Anyway, check that out at kpdq.com and some other stuff that you probably need to know about. Well, in the annals of social justice, perpetually divisive Ben and Jerry's declares policing violent, racist, ineffective, and punitive all the time. It doesn't matter who the police officer is, what the the situation is, uh, what their commitment is violent, racist, ineffective, and punitive. Now, my guess is Ben, Jerry, neither of them would call 911 if they found themselves in danger. Although they probably make enough money that they live in gated communities where they have their own, um, they have their own protection. In response to Texas pro-life law, date the uh, dating app, OKCupid created a pro-choice badge option. So if you're looking to date someone, you want to make sure that they're all in favor of ending the lives of um, unborn children in utero or rather pre-born children in utero, because that's going to make a great partner if you're looking for someone to date. Uh, Coaches at a Tennessee school were told not to lead students in prayer. So the students, well, they went ahead and led themselves. Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban is more liberal than uh, limits in France and Germany. Some might be surprised to learn. And there are far more defensive gun uses than murders in America. You can read more about that at Real Clear Investigations online. You rarely hear about these uh, cases where defensive gun use is used to prevent crimes. But you can check it out at Real Clear Investigations. Well, on this day in history, 1780, British spy John Andre is captured along with the papers revealing Benedict Arnold's plot to surrender West Point to the British. Benedict Arnold has never forgiven him for carrying that paper. 1806, the Lewis and Clark Expedition returns to St. Louis more than two years after setting out for the Pacific Northwest. 1889, Nintendo is founded in Kyoto, Japan, as a playing card company. 1952, on this very day in history, Senator Richard M. Nixon, Republican from California, salvages his vice presidential nomination by appearing on television from Los Angeles to refute allegations of improper campaign fundraising and what became known as the Checkers speech. Some of you actually remember that. 1957, nine black students who entered Little Rock Central High School at uh, Arkansas, or rather in Arkansas, are forced to withdraw because of white mobs outside. Eighteen, or rather, nineteen eighty-seven. Senator Joe Biden withdraws from the Democratic presidential race following questions about his use of borrowed quotations and the portrayal of his academic record. 2002, Governor Gray Davis signs a law making California the first state to offer workers paid family leave. And finally, on this day in history, 2014, in the first international test for his climate change strategy, President Barack Obama presses world leaders at the United Nations to follow the United States' lead on the issue. Well, the Federal Reserve signaled at the conclusion of its two-day meeting this week that it could soon start slowing its aggressive bond-buying program, the first step that policymakers will take to to a dialing back pandemic-era support for the U.S. economy. If the economy continues making progress toward the U.S. central bank's goals on inflation and employment, the committee's uh, judges uh, that a uh, moderation in the pace of asset purchases may soon be warranted. That's the Federal Open Market Committee saying in its uh, post-meeting statement released on Wednesday. Well, the Fred, Fed rather continued to hold interest rates at the rock-bottom level where they – have sat since March of 2020 when COVID-19 forced an unprecedented shutdown on the nation's economy. It also committed to keep purchasing $120 billion in bonds every month, a policy known as quantitative easing rather that's designed to keep credit cheap. Officials have signaled that reducing bond purchases will be the first step the Fed takes in returning to a more normal policy setting. So if you're interested, keep your eye on that. Well, there's one piece of the $3.5 trillion spending bill that the media is unlikely to tell you about. It's their bailout. Yeah, the media, journalists. Well, the massive, rather bloated $3.5 billion spending bill has so much pork that fiscal hawks, um, well, they could eat it for weeks. One piece that hasn't received much attention yet is a special journalism tax credit. A journalism tax credit equal to 50% of the salary of each journalist up to $50,000 per journalist annually. This is not the Babylon Bee, by the way. It's correct. Your tax dollars would be paying 50% of the salary of many journalists, whether you like their reporting or not. Now, think of it as a way to return every news outlet in America into a version of, well, NPR. Let's be clear. Saving the media would destroy the media. How could we ever trust journalists to accurately cover the elected officials who voted against their funding? How can we speak truth to power when you're also pleading with that power for cash? Which news outlets would get the funding and which would be snubbed? Any pretense of objectivity would be destroyed once the media is on the federal payroll. And if you think the media is already hostile to conservatives, libertarians, Christians, business leaders, Southerners, and basically anyone who didn't love Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's dress for the Met Gala, just imagine the disdain they'll show us once they've funded, uh, they're funded by tax dollars. Also imagine the press coverage of any politician that dares to oppose renewing or increasing that same funding. So keep your eye on the details, which, of course, members in Washington don't even know. I see that hand, Clark Hilton. I see that hand. It is a signal. I get it. Uh, By the way, I probably won't even have time to finish this, but Facebook released its updated content distribution guidelines today, shedding some light on how the tech giant decides what content it suppresses. But you're going to have to listen tomorrow to get the details because as I have received the signal from Clark Hilton, who is diligent in his efforts, I'm out of time. But coming up, Alexandra Kirkendall, loving my actual neighbor, seven practices to treasure the people right in front of you. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine
1: Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Well, we live in a time that is characterized by disconnection and polarization. But Jesus calls his followers, you and I, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, that can be kind of tough. The details of what that looks like can be pretty tick tricky. And in her latest book, Loving My Actual Neighbor, Seven Practices to Treasure the People Right in Front of You, Alexandra Kirkendall writes, In families, churches, and communities, we are missing each other. Often our intentions are good, but we get stuck. Well, in an attempt to help us get unstuck, she digs into the first chapter of 2 Peter and examines seven important practices, whether it's the grocery store clerk or the uh, uh, the cubicle mate or the woman across the street. She offers practical ideas of how to embrace those times of natural interactions where we intentionally show others we care. Well, Alexandra Kirkendall is the author of Loving My Actual Neighbor, Loving My Actual Christmas, and um, The Artist's Daughter, and the co-host of the Open Door Sisterhood podcast. A popular writer and speaker for moms around the country, Alexandra has been featured on Good Morning America, Focus on the Family's Daily Broadcast as well. She lives in Denver, Colorado with her husband and their four daughters. She joins us today to help us uh, love our neighbors as we ought. The book is titled Loving My Actual (laughs) Neighbor. I love that title. Thank you so much for joining us, Alexandra. Oh, thank you for having me. When the book first arrived, I, I, I loved the title because loving one's neighbor seems like something we all would agree to. And we have a general idea that we're kind to people. But loving our actual neighbor and being intentional about it is something that we perhaps struggle with. And your book helps us to, uh, to address that. In the introduction, you write, I'm writing this book because I need it. <laughs> Explain what you mean by that.
3: Well, I realized after the presidential election a few years ago that I was living in an echo chamber, just like the rest of the country was. And I thought, am I unconsciously, because I wasn't consciously, but am I unconsciously surrounding myself with people who think like I do because it's easier? And I thought, probably I am. So I became aware of small decisions and small habits I did to not avoid people, but maybe to avoid conflict. And I thought, I don't know that this is what Jesus was talking about when he said, love thy neighbor. He was talking about loving the people right around us, regardless of our differences. And so I wanted to figure out the how of beginning, because as I talk to people, I realized I wasn't alone in knowing that I probably could do a better job, but the starting place is often the place where we feel most blocked. Because once we start getting into relationship with people, we find things in common, and we start to enjoy each other. But the getting started can be hard.
2: I know that many of us are reluctant because we make assumptions, and you describe perhaps one of the assumptions we might make. We may disagree on major issues that will come up and make it awkward. Uh, We're not quite Mm -hmm. sure how to start the conversation. We're not sure what our end game is and so on. What do you find is most common uh, as to why people fail to uh, reach out to and love their neighbor as Scripture clearly says we ought?
3: Well, I found there's two kinds of um, categories. When I ask people, what keeps you from loving your neighbor like you'd like to? A lot of people get, have quick answers. Um, his, his dog stays up all night barking. Um, he drives on my lawn. He or she um, yells at her kids and I can't um, get away from the noise of that family. There are some of us that have a real immediate response because we have conflict with our actual neighbors. Mm-hmm. So that's one category of, I think, our population of people. But the other is more of an internal thing that is a hesitation that we are going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. There's a fear that we won't do a good job, not just that our neighbors are making us angry, but that we won't do a good job in loving them and that the, the differences will create innate conflict. And so um, I think the first step we need to do is realize we are probably going to make some missteps. And when we acknowledge that we're not going to do it perfectly, we then have the freedom to go in knowing it's going to be a little bit messy and a little bit awkward.
2: Do we sometimes overestimate our neighbors' expectations that if there is going to be some connection, it's their expectation is it's going to be done perfectly, that they're just waiting to be offended so that they can you know, end any connection that we might be trying to make? Do we need to just relax a little bit? Yeah, and that's one of my chapters is
3: really we need to lighten up because mm-hmm. we do tend to take ourselves pretty seriously um, as people, but especially as Christians, we think, you know, we're talking about important matters often in the church. And uh, and spiritual things can feel very big and important, but if we just lighten up and find common ground with our neighbors around small things that may seem trivial, then we can um, start to connect in really natural ways. But I think you're right. We often assume that there's going to be more difference than there actually is, Mm -hmm. and we are afraid that there's going to be more conflict than there turns out to be.
2: Now, as I mentioned earlier, the book is based on Principles found in Second Peter. Remind us of Second Peter and how that uh, helps us understand how to approach those who are our actual neighbors.
3: Well, I was talking to a friend of mine about this idea of what does it mean to truly love our neighbor. And she said, you know, there are at least a couple of verses in the first chapter of Second Peter that I think help us build a framework for loving our neighbors in a way that's sustaining. Because sometimes as Christians, we think, oh, yeah, oh, love your neighbor. I'm supposed to do that. And we add it to our to-do list and we get excited about it for a little bit. But then it gets hard and uh, we get uncomfortable and we kind of pull back or we just tuck her out from the effort. And so these verses really are a way to create a sustain. Mm -hmm. model for loving our neighbors. And we often think about giving when we think about loving our neighbors, giving out of this generous spirit. But this framework really ends with giving. But first we need to be humble, ask questions, listen, be uncomfortable, accept our neighbor's circumstances. Like I said, lighten up a little, and then we can give. Because then we're giving out of a place of knowledge of our neighbor.
2: Do you think people have more difficulty connecting with their neighbors today than, say, decades or generations ago, particularly given how mobile we are and disconnected our communities tend to be? You know, I've only lived now, but I can can assume that
3: that is the case. My uh, next-door neighbor, who is probably around 70 years old, I gave her a copy of the book this week. She came over yesterday and said, it used to be this way. So I think there is some... Um, element of truth. I don't want to Mm over-stouchalize the past, but um, just the amount of time that we spend looking at screens, we have to be spending less time in face-to-face interactions. And because these screens allow us to sift through to voices that we tend to agree with, Or allow us to be really rude to people we don't agree with. Mm -hmm. We are losing the art of being with people who are different than us and who really disagree with us and being civil in that. And that is part of what this book is about. It's how to remember how to do that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we're talking about the book titled Loving My Actual Neighbor, Seven Practices to Treasure the People Right in Front of You. And it's sometimes easier to treasure people far away than the ones right up to us because it requires right close to us rather requires an investment. And as one of your principles suggests, we might feel a little awkward along along the way, but we need to be willing to experience that awkwardness for the value of, uh, first of all, obedience. Um, but cherishing those people who are right in front of us. Well, let's talk about some of these principles that you write about, that you begin by holding a posture of humility. Uh, we may think because our our material wealth is superior to our neighbors or theirs superior to ours, or we tend to manage things differently, we may um, suffer from a bit of arrogance. Um, why is humility so important when we're beginning to make that connection or at least anticipating making connection?
3: Sure. It right-sizes us, I think,
2: into where we sit
3: in the universe.
2: When we remember that
3: God is God and we are not, we suddenly have an even playing field with our neighbors as far as access to truth and knowledge. And we can remember we are made in God's image, but he is ultimately in control And the same is true of our neighbor. Our neighbor is made in God's image, and we have access to God's grace, as does our neighbor. And when we remember where we fit in the paradigm of the world, it helps us remember that we don't know everything. Mm -hmm. We just simply can't. And even though we think we've made um, a worldview based on all of this great information that we've collected over our lifetime, the truth is it is limited information. And our neighbors have a worldview based on their limited information. And so when we go into interactions and conversations, when we have that vantage point, things tend to go better.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Alexandra Kirkendall, author of Loving My Actual Neighbor, Seven Practices to Treasure the People Right in Front of You. And as you're listening, think about some of the people whose lives yours connects with or connect with. And uh, perhaps this is a great start to love the neighbor that's um, actually in your your circle of uh, friends and influence. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing a conversation with author Alexandra Kirkendall. Her book is titled Loving My Actual Neighbor. She uh, takes her influence from Second Peter, and the subtitle is Seven Practices to Treasure the People Right in Front of You. And just before we. Uh, Uh, took a break we were talking about holding a posture of humility i think one of the other things that makes us reluctant to approach our neighbors our actual neighbors is knowing what to say and you encourage us to ask questions to learn we don't have to come with all the answers we don't have to dominate the conversation but asking questions is a great way to get to know others and to demonstrate that humility that you just spoke about
3: right and we want to remember that we're asking questions to learn that's Mm -hmm. the end goal Because we can use questions in a manipulative way, we can ask questions that make people feel uncomfortable and put on the spot, and that's not the intent. The intent truly is to draw out our neighbors and to learn from them, and especially to learn their stories. Because as we learn about people's individual experiences, we start to get to the heart of who they are why they think the way they do, why they feel the way they do, why they make choices that they do. And it often has to do with the story behind their life.
2: Mm -hmm. And learning that story can help to knit our hearts together. Um, You Mm -hmm. also suggest being quiet, which is connected to um, asking questions, but being prepared to listen. Again, sometimes we ask a question in order to be manipulative, but we need to be good listeners.
3: Right, and it seems a little obvious to say we need to be quiet to listen, but we often need to do more than just not talk. We need to quiet our spirits and quiet our minds as our neighbors are talking. I'm often thinking about what my response is going to be instead of listening to the other person. And so if we give ourselves some freedom to slow down a little bit and simply listen We can trust the Holy Spirit to bring to mind questions or responses to say. We need to be mindful of how we are responding to our neighbors, though. We need to be mindful of our body language, our Mm -hmm. facial expressions, and uh, the things that we do say with our words. But often we are quick to respond, and I think we need to slow down a little bit in our responses.
2: Yeah, yeah. Now, we talked about this a bit a few moments ago, but you suggest we need to stand in the awkward. Anticipate that there are going to be moments where you feel awkward. Just be willing to stand in that for the sake Mm -hmm. of relationship. Right, because the truth is, if we're with people, at
3: some point, it's going to get uncomfortable (laughs) because no one's perfect, right? So two imperfect people bumping up against each other, there's going to be some kind of disagreement or conflict or just awkwardness. And we now live in a time where as soon as that happens, our tendency is to pull back. And my challenge to readers is to stay in it, because if we feel a little bit uncomfortable, Chances are the person we are with senses that. And if we stay and they know that we are staying, even though there's some discomfort, what we are telling them is, you are more important to me and this relationship is more important to me than my own comfort. And I think that's what starts to build trust. And trust is what is going to knit us together. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Now, your next chapter is titled Accepting What Is. Now, I've listened. I've asked good questions. Now I have my laundry list of ways to fix the other person. (laughs) But your chapter is titled Accepting What Is. What is my goal in developing that relationship when I I think maybe I have some answers?
3: Right. Well, I think you're welcome to give answers if somebody has asked for your opinion. (laughs) And that's, um, you know, we all are a little challenged in that, and maybe personality plays into it some. But when we uh, accept our neighbor's circumstances or choices, what we are telling them is, I see God's creation in you. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that we are approving of their choices, and sometimes as Christians we get those confused. We think that by accepting who our neighbors are, we are approving of all of their choices along the way. And what we're doing is we're going back to that posture of humility and we're right sizing ourselves and we're saying there are some things that are out of my control, including my neighbor's free will. And my job here is to reflect God's love back to my neighbor. And it frees us up. From trying to control a situation or a person, and really allows us simply to control our own responses to our neighbors.
2: Your last chapter, the seven of the the seventh rather of the treasures, um, as we're uh, practicing to treasure the people that are right in front of us, is to give freely. Um, what are some of the ways that we can do that that are meaningful as we are attempting to love our actual neighbors?
3: Well, we can give. In practical ways. So we can give help. We can give um, our treasure, as we like to say in the church, so financially. We can uh, give and meet people's physical needs um, just through the practical ways that we help our neighbors. But we can also give grace and forgiveness. We can give uh, our attention, which I think is a very rare gift for people to receive these days if we give people undivided attention and we can do all of that better if we have put into place the other six practices first. Mm -hmm. So all of these practices are meant to be done simultaneously, but the beauty of it is they do build on each other. So if you want things to go in order, I would suggest practicing these practices and focusing in on them one at a time in the order that they're laid out in the book.
2: Once again, we're talking about Loving My Actual Neighbor, Seven Practices to Treasure the People Right in Front of You. How has, um, uh, you write about uh, the idea of Saturday living, and how has that looked in your, first explain what it is, and how that's looked in your own life? Well, Saturdays are a great day to be with
3: neighbors. I just had a Saturday, and we were, at the soccer field and the basketball court and in the front yard doing yard work. It's a natural day to connect with our neighbors. So there's that surface element. But then as Christians, we live in an in-between space. And I think of Good Friday and the cross and the sin of the world that Good Friday represents. And Resurrection Sunday is the good news, the end of the story that we have access to as believers. But as we walk along this earth in our incarnational lives, we stand in between those two, the hard reality of the world, which is represented by Good Friday, and the hope of heaven, which is represented by Resurrection Sunday. And Holy Saturday is what's in the middle. Mm -hmm. And as we interact with our neighbors, that's where we live. We are with them in the gritty and the real. That's what we're not walking away from. But we're also pointing them to the hope that Sunday has to offer because it is the good news of the world. And so it's in that Saturday space that we serve our neighbors best.
2: Mm. And as we're in spring and summer is coming, it's a great season to begin to anticipate and Uh, prepare to reach out to those who are our actual neighbors. Thank you so much. I loved the book and uh, really hope our our listeners um, will take seriously this challenge to love our actual neighbors. The book is published by Baker and uh, is available in bookstores. Thank you for talking with us today. Oh, thank you. Really appreciate it. Bye bye. Uh, You know, this is that season when the lawnmower might start a little earlier in the morning than you would like or the dog gets out and it's in your yard and you've got stuff that isn't your own or at least your dogs and there are annoyances that come. Um, Maybe they don't mow their lawn as often as you do. Whatever the situation might be, this is a great opportunity for us to forbear and to learn to love our neighbors. And I appreciate how practical uh, the book is in outlining what Second Peter tells us about loving our neighbor. And uh, the book is, as I mentioned, currently available.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Earlier this week, I read an article in Christianity Today, and then a couple of days later, received a, an email from a local pastor uh, drawing my attention to the same article. And after. That exchange thought, well, maybe I would share it with you. It's written by Wesley Hill, who is a professor, a seminary professor, the headline of which, uh, and by the way, you can find this in Christianity Today, hard copy Bibles aren't just nostalgic. He says, as a seminary professor, I'm required the physical book in class. That's what he requires. Church should do the same. And this is what he has to say about the physical Bible as opposed to the digital Bible. Now, we talked about this years ago, this very subject whether or not it was a better idea to have the physical body as opposed to the digital virgin. Anyway, he writes, as I prepare to begin my 10th year as a seminary professor, I'm going to begin the biblical capstone class I'll be teaching by recommending that my students consider taking up a habit they're likely unfamiliar with, bringing an actual physical printed and bound Bible to class. Now, some of you may balk at this idea, but hear me out or hear him out, Professor Wesley Hill. My reason for the recommendation isn't just about nostalgia, though. I did grow up carrying a Bible to church each Sunday. The first Bible I recall as being my Bible, the possessive pronoun being a piece of Christian speak that seems to have burrowed its way into the instinctive vocabulary of the faithful, was the Youth Walk edition of the New International Version, given to me by my parents while I was still in middle school. And just a little editorial comment: I remember my first Bible. I won it in church. If You can put it, (laughs) I earned it, I'll put it that way. Uh, I memorized the 23rd Psalms and the Lord's Prayer, recited it publicly, and was given a Bible. Anyway, he continues, again, Professor Wesley Hill, I liked this swath of deep purple that stood out on the cover, but I don't recall reading it much, aside from uh, thumbing through it to find isolated verses, old favorites that I had already memorized or gathered that I thought to have memorized. It wasn't until I was in high school when I acquired a faux leather-bound study edition of the New King James Version that I started reading larger chunks of Scripture, often while sitting at church when I grew bored with the sermon. That's how I learned my way around the Bible, stringing the verse uh, pearls I would already knew onto a more extensive narrative, historical and theological thread. It was while reading that study edition, which featured those little half moon indentations at the start of each biblical book, facilitating the easy flipping back and forth between books for cross-referencing, that I first began to get an inkling of why Alan Jacobs has called the Codex the form of a published Bible that the early church of the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries quickly came to prefer over scrolls, the technology of typography. Typology, let's get that word right. I wouldn't have been able to uh, put it that way at the time, but I was learning by experience what early biblical interpreters already understood and prized. Having a Bible with stacked pages bound together on one side, uh, rather than one long sheet wrapped up in, uh, to look like a piece of piping, made it possible to examine a section of the Old Testament in its context on the entire page and compare it simultaneously with a section of the New, also in its wider setting. He continues, handling a physical Bible taught me at a subconscious level to read scripture as a canon, a library of books whose disparate voices could be heard as if they were speaking with and alongside one another about the same subject matter. So I won't just be recommending hard copies of the Bible because I want to relive my youth. I want my students to become better readers of the whole Bible, letting its words ricochet off one another and lead them ping by Uh, I don't even know this word, contraputal uh, ping, I apologize, I'm certain I mispronounced it, through a canon-wide romp, which is why I'll also be recommending a bound paper copy with a good cross-reference system in its footnotes or center column such as the NRSV or the ESV Personal Reference Bible. There are many wonderful electronic Bibles to choose from these days. I use the ESV's beautiful app on a daily basis. But in 2021, I'm still wary, as Jacobs said he was in 2001, of making use of an electronic version of the scroll cabinets, firmly rejected by the early church. I wouldn't want to be without my... Accordance software and other apps. But it's worth recognizing that when we use tools like these, we are in certain respects returning to the scrolls that the first Christian theologians, for reasons properly theological and hermeneutical, displaced with the Codex. But there's one more reason I'll be recommending hard copy Bibles toting uh, students, And that's because I want them to think about what practices they'd like to commend to these under their care once they've graduated and become pastors and preachers themselves. Choosing a medium for our Bible reading isn't only about us. It's about what sorts of attitudes and postures we're likely to encourage in our churches. Again, he's a seminary professor. The technological critic L.M. Sicassis, who recently had a stimulating conversion with Ezra Klein, had assembled a set of questions each of us might ask ourselves when we consider our relationship to various technologies and devices. The questions range from fairly straightforward, how will the use of this technology affect how I relate to other people? To more philosophically complex, does this technology automate or outsource labor or responsibilities that are morally essential? At least one of the questions strikes me as essential, pertinent, essentially rather, pertinent to our encounter with the Bible. What practices will the use of this technology displace? In other words, what might we lose and what might we tacitly encourage others to lose, forget or marginalize if we give up the habit of reading, reading paper and binding Bibles? Those of us charged with the care of souls might uh, meditate for a long time on that question. Ten years ago, the Episcopal priest Fleming Rutledge, not thinking primarily of the classroom, but of the gathered congregation on Sunday mornings, wrote about her frustration with the fashion in many Episcopal churches of printing each Sunday's Uh, lectionary readings in the bulletin. Such a practice ensures that churchgoers won't feel the need to bring along their Bibles or reach for the ones sometimes available in the pew racks in front of them. It might also be that it uh, discourages them, helpfully, from reaching for their smartphones, but that'll be for another piece. When everyone is reading from a printed sheet, Rutledge says in her book, and God spoke to Abraham. No one is learning where in the Bible the passage is located or how it's linked to what comes before it or after it. She continues in this vein for a while with her characteristically delightful Uh, pugnacity. A whole generation of churchgoers is being raised with no sense of actually handling the Bible or finding the passage and reading it in its sequence. The large Bibles on the lecterns are sitting unused, their pages gathering dust. Some have been removed altogether. The wonderful sight of the reader mounting up uh, to the lectern and turning the pages to find the place is seldom seen today. If you go on and read the subsequent sermons, you'll find asides such as, now notice verse 4, but that's also what we see in the next chapter well he goes on but concludes by saying this i hope what i offer my students in class provides the same enticement and i hope they'll pass it along to the bible reading christians whom they'll nurture in turn again wesley hill is an associate professor of new testament at western theological seminary his most recent book is the lord's prayer a guide to praying for our father and i would encourage you to check out the column and it's in it's an entirety at Christianity Today online. Hard copy Bibles aren't just nostalgic is the title of that column. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice show part of your day. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at grice show And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.